Welcome to Story Talk, a roundtable discussion of a single story at a time. Story Talk is a production of One Week Critique, an Iowa-based arts and education nonprofit that offers educational resources and editorial support to students and teachers of the literary arts. You can learn more about us and our programs or support our work by visiting our Patreon page or by going to our website, oneweekcritique.com. That's the number one, weekcritique.com. And of course, we would appreciate if you would like and subscribe to our programs on YouTube, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you might have found this podcast. I'm Adam Alsergani, here today with Matthew Schmidt. Hello. And Ingrid Wensler. Hi. Today we'll be discussing The Golden Bird, or Dutter Golding Vogel, KHM 57 of the Grimm's Fairy Tales, or Children and Household Tales, first published in 1812. The translation we're discussing today, crafted by Marion Edwards and Edgar Taylor, was published in 1905. The Golden Bird begins with the introduction of the king's remarkable garden, which includes a tree that produces golden apples. When three golden apples go missing from the tree, an unlikely set of events unfolds. It is discovered that the thief is a golden bird with feathers of great value. The king's gardener entrusts his sons to bring this bird, sending his eldest and second son first and second. When they aren't able to succeed, the youngest son, with the help of a talking fox he only sometimes listens to, is able to bring home not only the bird, but also a golden horse and a beautiful princess as well. This leads to the youngest son having the whole kingdom. That's a short and incomplete description. Uh, I felt like we couldn't continue to do story talk if we hadn't covered the subject of fairy tales just a little bit. Um, And of course, in the tradition of fairy tales, uh, the Grimm brothers are maybe the most popular version of this story, but they are not the only version. So I thought I'd leave it to you guys to uh, give us a summary that has a little bit more detail. Um, But also, I wanted to ask if you've read other versions of this story, and if so, how they differ uh, from the Grimm's version of Derek Golding Vogel. Am I getting close on that one? Oh, yeah, that's close (laughs) enough. Okay. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I haven't read any other versions of this particular tale that I remember. That doesn't necessarily mean anything, because sometimes I get lost in the same type of story. Uh, I think the interesting thing here that sets this story apart from a lot of different stories is that uh, the sons that go on these quests to first try to get the golden bird are all the sons of the gardener. And usually they're the sons of the king. Um, You know, when there's a king involved. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, uh, the, the thing that happens is the eldest boy goes first, the middle boy goes second. Of course, both of them fail. Because when they meet the talking fox, they do not listen to his wisdom. And to their detriment, they end up in an inn where there are a lot of people having a lively time, singing, drinking, etc. They end up forgetting what they were doing and about their lives entirely. They're basically just kind of stuck in this magical inn. Uh, Finally, the third son of the gardener goes out. And he listens to the talking fox, at least at first. Uh, Of course, he doesn't listen to all the fox's instructions. Uh, When he goes to take the golden bird, uh, instead of taking the golden bird in the old birdcage, he wants the golden birdcage because, well, why would you put a golden bird in a shitty birdcage? So, of course, by taking the golden cage, uh, everyone wakes up, the bird squawks, right? Like he is then brought before the court and condemned to death, unless, of course, he can bring the golden horse uh, from somewhere else. In this version, it's kind of uncertain whether the golden horse is at the same kingdom or not. Yeah, it's weird. Which is weird because it's, I'm pretty sure it's meant to be the horse at another kingdom. Um, but anyway, each time, uh, the fox tries to help the youngest boy and he gets close, but he gets caught every time. Uh, finally, you know, the fox has to really be like, Hey man, 
Like, you're going to die if you don't listen to me. <laughs> and so eventually, you know, he, he follows the fox's instructions well enough to acquire the princess, the golden horse, and the golden bird. But then, of course, disobeys the fox again, uh, helps free his brothers from uh, death on his way back home with his treasures. Uh, the brothers then trick him because he doesn't listen to the fox and take all of the spoils home to the king and, uh, of course, shove the brother into a dry riverbed <laughs> that he can't get out of somehow <laughs> until the fox saves him. And he goes home and everything returns to normal. Basically what was happening is the golden bird wouldn't sing, the golden horse wouldn't eat, and the princess wouldn't stop crying. Once he returns, everything goes back to normal. He tells the king what actually happened. And in some way, the brothers are punished and he takes over the kingdom. Uh, that's the basic uh, summary. I think that's a bit closer, leaving out a few like distinct details. Indeed. Um, yeah, I, I appreciate you breaking all of that down. This, like, it's, I mean, this story is less than, I think it's like 2,600 words or something. And it's, it's a crazy busy story, even for a fairy tale. Um, Ingrid, how about you? Are you familiar with other versions of this one? Yeah, I actually um, happened to have just read um, another version pretty recently. And, you know, I don't, I don't know that the alternate version. Um, so the alternate version that I, that I had read is um, the Firebird, the Russian tale. And, um, you know, it's, it's very similar in a lot of ways. Um, the Firebird is stealing the apples in just the same way. Um, it is only different in that it's described as a Firebird. Um, I think some differences that I do note um, is it is the king's sons who keep watch in the garden and their challenge is to stay awake, um, which is a little different in the grim tale. And the youngest um, catches hold of the firebird's tail and is left with the, holding the feather. As a result, in the grim tale, um, the bird's shot at. <laughs> so they add in more violence. Um, let's see what else. I made a few notes here. Um, the czar's reaction to the feather is interesting in, in the firebird tale. He looks at it, he no longer feels sorrowful. And I mean, he had been feeling angry, just like in the grim tale earlier. Um, so it sort of switches to sorrow. And he thinks a great deal about the firebird. And then he sends his sons out. Um, what's really interesting about that to me, um, that difference, is in the Grim Tale, it seems like it's more a question of the value of the feather and thus the mission. Um, in, in the firebird tale, it's a little murkier, um, like what the rationale is for trying to find this bird. Um, and for me, that has a little narrative heat about it. I kind of want to know if I'm going to find out why the king's after the feather and the bird. Um, in the Russian version, there's a wolf. Um, I don't know if that's a regional thing or why the Grimm yeah. brothers made that change. Um, I, I definitely have come to associate it to associate foxes with a kind of cleverness, although um, wolves to some extent too. Um, cleverness and also a little bit of trickery. Um, in terms of the mission itself, the boys set off in um, different directions. So there's not the same one takes off than another, than another, as you get in the grim tale. Um, there is similar temptation. Um, the, the issue with the, the cage that Matthew describes um, is also an issue in this tale. 
um, as a sort of like disobedience and not heeding the advice of a magical helper. Um, and I mean, there's a little more specificity throughout the tale. So the czar um, gets named the king, the differences in the ki- between the kingdoms and where, where the horse is located, where the bird is located, where the princess is located is a little clearer in this version. Um, likewise, there's a little more logic, like you get a little more psychology in this tale and motivation in this tale. Um, at one point when they get to the point where they're, when the, when the wolf and, um, Ivan, who's the youngest son who's named in this tale, um, get to the point where they're trying to keep everything that they've collected at this point. Um, there is a reason that's presented for that. Um, he worries about exchanging the princess for a horse, um, which seems really humane. I'm like, Oh, good for him. But then he also worries about exchanging the horse for a firebird. So it's kind (laughs) of cut immediately in a funny way. Um, and I mean, I think maybe the most significant difference between the two comes toward the end. Um, the gray wolf, um, well, I guess, I mean, on the whole, backpedaling a little bit, there is a little more indebtedness in this version. Um, so the wolf is helping Ivan because he feels guilty for eating Ivan's horse, um, which Ivan did know that. Ivan did know, choosing the direction he did, that that was going to happen. But the wolf feels guilty and decides to help him. Um, <laughs> Likewise, toward the end, um, Ivan's killed, and the way the wolf ends up reviving Ivan, um, he does die in this version and is kind of brought back to life. Um, the wolf asks, gets help from a crow, um, but he takes the crow's little chick hostage and gets healing water from the crow. <laughs> Um, by holding the chick hostage. So there's that difference. And this one does end with a nice happily ever after as well. Uh, yeah. Um, wild. Uh, one of the reasons I really wanted to talk about different versions is, right, like fairy tales are a version of a, a folktale, right? They've got um, the grim version of fairy tales is the one we often think of is the like standard in America and in Europe, um, that and Hans Christian Andersen. Um, I mean, there are other sort of famed fabulists that like have done this kind of recording, but that's the, the sort of one we think of. So I think it's, it's really great to hear out, you know, a little bit of a contrast between, say, a particular Russian version of this story and the Grimm version of this story. Um, one thing that I think that the Grimms do that sort of made their standardized versions, apart from readability, uh, become so popular is I think they're connected to other myths, other fairy tales. I think they love, like Hans Christian Andersen does, to like really allude to uh, biblical stories and other religious stories when they can. Um, Do you guys have thoughts on like what kind of, I picked this story because it seems to me not only like a pretty good example of like what happens in a fairy tale generally, but also because it's bringing in the whole like kitchen sink for this party. Um, Do you guys have thoughts on other stories and stuff that might be relevant to be thinking about as we dive into what the heck is a fairy tale? Yeah, I mean, so many, most of them, you know, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, I, I was, you know, in, in fairy tales, they, a lot of fairy tales often follow like the number three, uh, and they use the number three often because it's an odd number and it creates suspense, but also it's the smallest number that you can find a pattern in, Mm. right? Like if it happens twice, it can be a coincidence. If it happens three times, it's a pattern. Um, And 
like three, think about three in religion, especially some of the major Western religions, right? The, the Trinity is an obvious uh, uh, illusion. And if we want to get even more obvious biblically, like think about uh, Peter denying Jesus yeah. uh, three times. And, you know, we can think of other famous fairy tales or, or fables like the Three Little Pigs or Rumpelstiltskin, guessing Rumpelstiltskin's name. Um, you know, and so I think it alludes to all different kinds of, of things like this. And, and often, you know, different types of stories are about people that are getting, trying to get rich or become famous or well-known or have things. And so, of course, this does too. Like, the two main animals besides the fox are both golden. Right? Like, (laughs) it doesn't get much more, like, you know, valuable than those things. And not only are they golden, but, like, somehow the bird is able to steal apples and the horse is super fast. Right? So, not only are they valuable, monetarily they have other values uh such as speed or slyness and even on the flip side think about the fox like we haven't really said this yet but the fox is under a spell and that's you know part of the reason why the fox can talk in this fairy tale is that the fox is a human being trapped inside a fox body but even the fox somehow knows all of these things. And you're like, well, how does the fox know these things? But it's more of like an intuition kind of thing that the fox has an end goal in this story. Um, But it's strange because the end goal only works if the youngest son continues to disobey the fox, which I find fascinating. because. You have to obey him to a point, but not obey him all the way. Yeah, I think that's it's one of the things that I find most captivating about this story, that it's not just... Um, obedience is sort of a moral imperative, but knowing when to be disobedient is a magical imperative. Um, but, yeah, Ingrid, thoughts on stories where there are magical imperatives? Um, well, I don't know that that was what I was prepared to answer. <laughs> I'll come back to that. Maybe. Um, in, in terms of what this story alludes to, I think the one thing that really comes to mind for me is, um, uh, the story of Adam and Eve, um, the apple being stolen as a symbol of temptation. Um, so, I mean, I, I think uh, Matthew's dead on to think about the Trinity and um, threes is an important thing. But yeah, I would add um, that the Adam and Eve temptation story seems to be in conversation with this tale to some extent. And this is not um, an illusion, of course. It's something that grew out of this tale. But I think. Um, you know, just reading reading the two versions got me thinking about um, the Stravinsky ballet. I hadn't thought about this in years, but um, I actually, when I was about 18, um, heard about the Firebird being performed in New York, 18 or 19, and um, one of my coworkers was strongly recommending it and saying that any time it came to New York, she saw it. Um, so I begged my mom insisted a little my mom didn't really like ballet (laughs) on going and um you know I I think reading these tales I had that in mind and I was like well this is so strange the firebird um in in the tale isn't the source of rebirth um which is what I'd always associated with it so 
thinking about the ballet, I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole and I was trying to watch performances of Firebird um, ballet I saw or an earlier version. Um, and, you know, <laughs> I had a lot of little small internet adventures. I saw Maria Talchief, who is the first um, Native American prima ballerina um, teaching another she was also the first firebird in the U.S., um, teaching another ballerina and talking about performing the role of the firebird and how people, how Balanchine always used to tell her that the soul of the dancer is not in the eyes like people think, but actually she kind of points um, to kind of like the core area, um, which I thought was interesting. But basically going down this rabbit hole, I learned that um, the Stravinsky ballet, I think, is where we get the idea of the firebird being um, regenerative or um, a symbol of rebirth. Um, it seems like that tale combines the firebird from this tale and another Russian tale um, with Koshe the Deathless. Um, which I, I haven't read. I'm not familiar with that one. Um, and Wikipedia tells me that maybe um, the idea of mixing the two came from a popular Russian children's verse, um, which I've written down and will share with you. All right. And in my dreams, I see myself on a wolf's back, riding along a forest path. To do battle with the sorcerers are Cochet. In that land where a princess sits under lock and key, pining behind massive walls, their gardens surround a palace. I can't read my own handwriting. <laughs> of all glow, and, oh, of all glass. <laughs> um, their firebirds sing by night and peck at golden fruit. So there you get Koshe, the Zara sorcerer, and Firebirds in the same place. I like you know, that. that. That's what I've got for illusions. <laughs> yeah, I think that I'm really fascinated with this one in so many levels of its oddity. One thing we haven't really mentioned is uh, each time the, uh, the third son doesn't actually listen to the fox he acquires a new task it's almost like a video game right like if he does it wrong he doesn't die he just has to do something more inconvenient to get the thing but there might be new like acquisitions out of that process so by grabbing the wrong bird cage he doesn't lose the bird he just has to acquire the horse then by like not listening, like letting the princess say goodbye to her father. He has to like move an entire like hill or in some versions I've looked at, it's a mountain that he has to like dig just because it's inconveniencing the king's view. And I, uh, other than just thinking that's hilarious, I, it is this kind of like, fascinating for me it's got that kind of odyssean narrative thing right like if you do something wrong or you do it in the wrong way or if you just have to acquire more sort of like adventure points as it were in order to like get home and become a legend right like you have to do it in this particular way in this case he does get to ride a really cool fox as he's moving around he actually rides the fox's tail it's pretty exciting actually but um, uh, I bring up some of those things because the kind of illusions, because I hoped that, you know, we could talk a little bit about what a fairy tale is. And because this particular fairy tale has a sort of moral component, I thought it was a good opportunity to say or discuss the difference between what a fairy tale is as opposed to a fable, uh, what those things are as opposed to an allegory. Um, and I thought you two would be um, the perfect two folks to articulate this conundrum. Um, well, this is a good question, and I, I, I'm so glad that you chose this tale because 
I think um, you know, the lines between these different genres are at once um, steadfast and clear um, and, and muddy. Um, I think, you know, fairy tales share similarities with myths and with fables and allegories. And that's part of why, you know, we're driven to ask that question, what makes them different? Um, I assume that part of why you think I'd be good to answer this question is because I took a class on fairy tales with you, with Kate Bernheimer, um, a mentor and friend and gifted fairy tale um, scholar and writer. Um, and, you know, she, she shared a really wonderful text um, with our entire class by Max Luthi that really, um, you know, I'll summarize some points from it here. Just this wonderful job of thinking out what makes a fairy tale a fairy tale in different respects. Um, one, one really big aspect um, that he points to is that fairy tales are linear and forward-moving or forward-oriented. So there's usually a goal. And... You know, they're not looking to explain the past or examine the past and how we got here in the way that like a myth might. Um, and usually there's not much psychology or interiority like I was mentioning before. So, I mean, it's interesting to see a little bit more of that enter into the Russian tale as opposed to the grim. Um, Threes and patternings tend to be common. Um, threes, especially in Western tales, because of the Trinity, sometimes you get fours or sevens, um, other numbers repeating. Um, and, you know, that immediately um, conjures up fairy tale. I was listening um, to um, a Bob Dylan album today, um, The Times They Are Changing, and there's one song where he uses seven again and again. And even though the song's not a fairy tale, I'm thinking of um, Hollis Brown um, at all. Toward the end, it, it very much calls to fairy tale for me. Um, and, you know, there are other songs of his that do that in that same album. Um, Boots of Spanish Leather refers to things made of silver or golden, the darkest night, uh, or stars from the darkest night, diamonds from the deepest ocean. Um, extremes are a big thing in fairy tales. So the most beautiful, um, the darkest night, um, and beauty having a sort of shock effect, um, you know, stopping a hero in his tracks. Um, also, Luthi points to um, something that the Russian scholar Vladimir Prop um, identifies, which is the lack and the lack liquidated, <laughs> which I think is a funny term. But basically, um, many fairy tales, um, in many fairy tales, like a hero will lack a bride or a king will be sick and need some kind of magical solution. And so, um, you know, this story will orient itself around that. Um, we don't have that in this one as much. Um, and, you know, in many, there'll be a state of happiness that exists at the beginning that must be returned to. Um, in this one, we sort of get moments of satisfaction and dissatisfaction in turns, um, like Adam's video game effect idea, I think. Is, is just that patterning. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think what this fa fairy tale shares in common with fable is, is the moral element. Um, that, you know, the two brothers who choose the fancier inn to stay in end up losing their way, but also end up forgetting their country. Um, that's not a thing in the Russian tale, and um, that seems a little pointed to me. Um, temptation is also 
something that this story seems to hammer on a little bit um, as a potential takeaway. Um, and, you know, also disobedience. Um, it's consistently saying that we should be um, listening to our foxes and our wolves and their sage advice. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's what I'll say about that. Um, I'll turn it over to Matthew. Yeah, I think the thing I would add <clears throat> about fairy tales is that they usually also have a magical component. Uh, that sets them apart from, say, a fable or an allegory. Um, that's so big and essential. I'm glad you, you mentioned that. <laughs> and, I mean, the other thing which uh, I think is obvious is there's usually good versus evil. Um, although in this fairy tale, it is a lot harder to tell what is good and what is evil. Um, I think fables, right, as Ingrid said, are generally about providing a moral or like how to behave um, in the world. Uh, but I would add that they also generally have talking animals uh, or plants or uh, other things in the world that are human-like. Um, myths, on the other hand, are generally ways to explain how the world works and why things happen. And allegory uh, is, is generally something that can be interpreted, uh, to mean different things. But I think like the thing that people often talk about with allegories is that they can have, uh, political or religious or, you know, uh, undertones that tell people like what to do. Um, and so those are like the slight differences between them. But let's be honest, most, you know, at least contemporary stories that would fit one of these categories kind of, you know, transverse whatever uh, threshold we might want to put on them. The older stories maybe follow them a little bit more. Yeah. yeah I can chime in. Um... One thing I wanted to say quickly is um, I think the good evil aspect of this tale is really interesting. And I'm glad you hit on that, Matthew. Um, and that in both versions I read, I, I consistently started to feel like, well, why, why is the fox or the wolf helping, <laughs> helping this son? And, you know, other than his early good choice of not harming the helper, um, you know, why, why does he deserve the princess or, or the horse or the bird as opposed to anyone else? Like, I think this tale isn't so clear in that way. And the protagonist too, I don't know. I don't always find myself rooting for. And, um, yeah, I, I guess that's my thought. <laughs> yeah. I actually think that that's a pretty good lead into my next question. Right, like I, I really think it's dangerous to the understanding of fairy tales to think there's some kind of objective correlative or like sort of like key that's gonna like this is the answer, and that's one of the things that is Matthew mentioned, right? Like differentiates it from like Aesop's fables or something, right? Although some of Aesop's fables have some pretty ambiguous morals <laughs> about them. Uh, but there is a there is this interestingly strong moral component to the golden bird that does remind me a little bit of like Greek mythology where like there's a lesson to be learned, but it's a little interpretive and specific to that like individual. Like why is this individual the individual or the sort of chosen one of the story? Um, more so than I feel like there's an answer to, you know, like, what should I do in my life in order to acquire my golden bird, golden horse, and golden princess? Um, and one way I thought we might kind of tease out some of the, like, the weird differences about that might be to look at some of the, the key symbolic images of the story. Matthew mentioned early on gold as the thing. Ingrid's obviously mentioned a few things. 
um, from the Russian tale that bring in like fire in opposition to the choice of gold or is an alternative to the choice of gold. But we have the golden bird and the golden bird's golden cage and the golden apples, um, gold in general, uh, age positionality, right? Like, and this sort of inferiority, non-inferiority. And then the magic fox, who I think is really interesting because I think there's a sort of trend in, especially the grim fairy tales. They love the fairy tales where someone's like suicidal for a very specific reason. Um, and so the, the fox towards the end does want to die by having his head chopped off and his paws chopped off specifically. So I thought maybe we could dig into all of that symbology a little bit and imagery. So for symbolic imagery, I think we could talk about any different number of things here. Yeah. But, uh, right, the apple, as Ingrid has already pointed out, very famously in westernized religion, right? It's on uh, the tree of knowledge. Um, it is interesting that the king on a daily basis has the apples counted as if somehow losing an apple is losing knowledge yeah. in a very strange way. Not only that, but the apples are golden, which is like, you know, we want to keep these things here because it's very important to our way of life. And so important that we're going to send out some garden boys on a quest uh, to go get the golden bird who's stealing the apples. I think it's interesting that it's a golden bird here. We don't really get a type of bird in this particular version, other than that it's golden. So you just kind of insert whatever type of golden bird you want. Um, but I think it is telling that it is a flying animal, meaning like if you don't protect uh, the fruits of your labor, so to speak, uh, they can easily disappear or something can come and take them. Now, I think the actual fact that the golden bird has a golden cage but doesn't live in the golden cage, and the fact that the golden horse has a golden saddle but maybe isn't always saddled in the golden saddle is, is a bit strange insofar as why is this one kingdom putting their golden bird in an old cage, right? Think about that. Like, I don't, I don't necessarily have an answer for that other than, you know, possibly the golden cage is cleaned on a daily basis, <laughs> but yet no one's like watching over the golden cage uh, when the garden boy shows up, the youngest son. I keep calling him the garden boy. I should stop. Um, but, right, like, why is this important bird, you know, getting out of its cage because it's not a golden cage normally? Mm. Right? Like, it, I, think it, I think what a good fairy tale does is often set up amorphous symbols and like you can have a lot of different readings that aren't necessarily incorrect or correct but can be made on the different symbols um i think obviously the fact that the fox is smart and knowledgeable kind of goes to the idea of the fox as an animal um of course, the thing that we really haven't said about the fox yet, which we're going to get into in the next question, I know, so we might as well mention it, is that the fox is actually the princess's brother. Right. And so his whole deal is trying to figure out, A, how to rescue his sister, and B, how to return to human form. Um, and so that's why he ends up helping the youngest son. Again, with the sons, it would seem like there's some sort of opinions given on the fact that the oldest son and the middle son are reckless. Insofar as like maybe it's trying to say like don't forget your youngest, you know, offspring, 
they too have something to offer to the world. Because if we think a lot about, uh, you know, inheritance through the ages or like kingdoms, it's always the firstborn son that's like the king. He's, he's, gonna, he's the next in line for the throne. Um, and it's like, don't forget, like, you have other children who are, you know, just as, if not more, proficient in certain things um, as the eldest. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't answer any questions, though. It, it, I don't think. I think it proposes more. Yeah, I think one thing I'm really fascinated about this particular tale happens to be, right, like, to your point about the bird, right, like, as you were talking about, we don't know what kind of bird, like, I'm having a, like, kind of jokey conversation in my own head about it being, like, a hummingbird, like, carrying off a really big apple. Uh, but, of course, like, that's not how I picture it when I read the story, and I think there's something fascinating this story really articulates about how fairy tale logic works that like there's something dreamlike about the logic where for the most part I can make sense of it or I apply sense to it by just creating those pictures in my mind as we move from thing A to thing B to thing C to thing D but at the same time right like there are some things that if you think too hard about, either you have to accept the magic of the situation, right? Or the symbolic magic of the situation. There's two cages for the bird. Regardless of what the reasoning for the two cages is, there are two cages for the bird. And for some reason, that second cage, the golden cage, is not meant to have the bird. And I think that's Seth. Um, it's really compelling, right? Certain versions of this story, apparently, I haven't actually found one. The youngest son is named something like Dumkoff, right? Like he's a, like, which I think also speaks, there are those sort of almost illusions, right? Like of having this sort of wisdom of the fool answer, the wisdom of the like less significant child in terms of birth order. But there's also, right, like, that child, in this case, only gets that opportunity when debauch takes away the older brothers, right? Like, otherwise, right, like, if it weren't for a little bit of debauch, like, the oldest brother would still just be the oldest brother, and maybe the princess would never escape, and the fox would just be a fox, right? And, yeah, and somehow, kissing the princess once, the youngest brother, yeah. like, will make her come with him? Like, what? <laughs> Um, yeah, I guess to chime in, I think one thing that's important to think about is um, going back to the apple as and its biblical significance. I think the Grimm tale and and the Russian tale share this that you know in the in the three instances where the youngest brother um, goes to take something and takes something extra, um, it does have that biblical resonance again. Um, you know, in terms of the tree of knowledge, the apple was a mistake because it was forbidden, but everything else was allowed. And so it's, it's kind of a similar thing where with the fox or, or the wolf, the instructions are what matters, um, and faith in those instructions, even if you don't understand why they're being given or the logic behind them. Um, I think also though, like greed <laughs> is a big thing that this tale is worried about and concerned over. So, I mean, understanding that there may sometimes be wisdom in staying in the shabbier in, um, because that's been advised or trusting in a humble animal, um, whose appearance may not be what it seems uh you know it reminds me of beauty and the beast in that way a little bit um and gosh there's just another one that came to mind as well it's 
slipping my mind now if it comes to me i'll come back to it but um i think matthew with the age positions that you you mentioned too um one thing that's interesting that happens in the russian tale is um there's this kind of awful moment toward the end where you know the brothers have have killed their youngest brother they they get less stage time in the russian tale but you know they kind of disappear for most of the tale and then come back as robbers and just kill him at random so at the end of the tale um the king like very briefly is upset that they're dead and then is almost immediately overjoyed that the youngest is going to be heir and is getting married um so you know i think that slips into the grim version but it's interesting that you know you pick up on that as as a way in which this tale is a little countercultural, even as it's saying, follow the rules, follow the rules, follow the rules, even if you don't understand them. Yeah, I think there's something fascinating both in terms of, right, like a sort of sidelong Cain and Abel story, right, where to, to not, in that case, to not give the best is to be greedy and keep for oneself or you know, a sort of Joseph story where jealousy of brothers or that sort of greed of like family is, is really terrifying, but also it's set within a context of acquisition and desire and who you can steal from, when you can steal from them, right? Like, but somehow this story allows for uh, the theft of the princess uh, and just like going up and kissing the princess, that's all copacetic. But like, uh, you know, to have that princess stolen from your brother, um, unacceptable um, entirely. Um, and those things are, I mean, they push on these edges of where our sort of boundaries are, which is kind of cool about fairy tales, right? Like, uh, Kate Bernheimer, who you mentioned earlier, Ingrid Wright, like, um, once gave a pretty compelling talk about fairy tales as sort of like a way of managing uh, the traumatic. And I think a lot of those, like, a lot of things in our lives that are, for lack of a better term, sort of casually traumatic, are casually traumatic because they walk up to a boundary that we think we understand, and then they shift that boundary or they force us to shift that boundary in a way that we don't agree to and that can be really terrifying um and i i think that the golden bird is uh, so upsettingly pushing on so many boundaries about family about wealth about self-identity about right like who our friends are and who our friends aren't, who we can trust and who we should listen to and when. Um, to that end, I'm really interested in thinking out uh, the sort of final boundaries of the story, right? Um, we haven't talked a lot about reuniting, but I sort of think that from the point at which the youngest brother re-encounters his older two brothers onward, the story for me is very much about reuniting and getting people back together is not always copacetic <laughs> and it sometimes comes with losses so i wondered as we're thinking this through if we can sort of lean into that and why is reuniting important here and why does the story end with that reuniting i mean ingrid you mentioned that kind of circularity earlier Um, yeah, so I, I think, you know, you speaking about some of this got, got me thinking a little bit. And I think it, a funny thing about fairy tales, I find, is that they're so straightforward and direct. They have that linear quality to them. And so, I mean, almost in the way that, like, <laughs> you know, when you read a news article, you feel like you're getting the facts. Um, but then if you read it again, you can start to see like the holes in the logic. 
Yeah. Or, you know, when, when the news is slipped into passive voice, you're like, oh, well, who was behind that action? Um, I, think, I think this tale, like, does build on itself a little bit in a subtle way. Um, you know, I think if you think about the transgressions that the younger son makes, in the first instance, he's told not to go after the golden cage. And that sounds an alarm. Um, and his reason for going after the golden cage, I believe, forgive me if I'm conflating the two versions, having a little trouble keeping them straight, um, is that it would be a shame to not have such a you know, beautiful, lovely bird and such a shabby cage that the pairing felt asymmetrical and sort of wrong. And likewise, the horse and the saddle. Um, in the Russian version, it's the horse and the, and the bridle, um, and, you know, it's a golden bridle and it's also bejeweled and the horse deserves such a bridle. Um, so, I mean, there, there are these issues of like wanting, wanting to sort of do an aesthetic justice, um, that ends up leading to like an actual a moment um, between the brothers that involves reuniting that I do really kind of get behind the younger brother's logic. I don't really care about the beautiful horse having the beautiful bridle, but at the point where he finds out his brother is going to be hanged and like out of loyalty, he wants to put up bond. Um, you know, then I'm like, Oh, okay. Um, make this sibling pairing happen. Um, that's a good thing to do. Good for you. Um, but you know, I think the brothers who, <laughs> who you think would be good folks to trust, um, aren't to be trusted. For sure. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the important things about reuniting is that we, if there's no part of the story that reunites the characters that were together at the beginning, even if that beginning was off page, then there's no reason for the story whatsoever. Um, and so it's, it's, it's like saying, Hey, we're alive. We're going to die soon. But like, there's still a reason to be here. <laughs> I'm not even joking about that though, <laughs> because like you have to tell yourself something to like make yourself like do things. Yeah. Right. Like you don't just wake up and you're like, Oh man, I got to go to work today. I love it. I love it. Got to make money. I got to get my gold bird. Right. Like, so if, if you don't circle back around, um, or have certain like things in your life, like that's why everyone talks about the family unit as being like a thing even if the family's a chosen family, like it doesn't matter what kind of family it is. It's like having a family helps you one way or another. Cause there are people you can talk to and rely on. Obviously not all families are good, especially some that are just, you know, uh, actual, uh, married families, um, uh, and related by blood. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, it, it, it goes to show, right, like that all people are fallible, even the fox. Some, something that the brother of the princess did got him into the body of a fox. Like he wasn't like born as a human being inside the body of a fox. Like a sorcerer or somebody put him in there. Uh, but like to make it happy in this particular one, the brothers are punished, but we're not told what their punishment is in this one. So they get off pretty light compared to a lot of fairy tales. Uh, but the fox, who is the brother of the princess, actually has to commit suicide um, or have someone kill him in the proper way to become a human again. And like the happiness there is that uh, the princess and her brother are reunited. Um, it's, it's imperfect because nothing's perfect. And I think that's part of what 
we've been kind of getting at this whole time. Uh, it, the fairy tale is so strange and foreboding and like both good and evil and every gradient in between are touched upon throughout the history of fairy tales because I think, right, we try to say like, you know, here's the purpose of life. You're born and you learn and you walk and you talk and you do these things and then you go do this thing. And it's always like, well, you know, you're going to be the king or you're going to be the best at that or you're going to be, you're going to do amazing things. And like, honestly, for the most part, that hardly ever happens for anyone. <laughs> right. And, and I know I'm being kind of a downer, but like, that's what the fairy tale is for. It's, it's to say like, you know, nothing is as exactly as you think it is. Right. It's like, we're like, well, let's take this to court and argue over it. Right. Using only facts. Well, you know, facts are just things that we agree upon to agree upon. They're, they're not actually like things that like once the sun, you know, burns the earth down are going to be facts anymore. Like they're, they're not immutable. Right. So I think what the fairy tale is saying is like, you know, everyone's alone. Everything's in, in darkness because we don't understand everything. But, like, we can uh, think about those things anyway because it'll give us uh, something fun to do. It will give us something to talk about. It will give us community, right? Like, it'll give us all the things that are really hard for us to find without things in common. Yeah. A heck of a rallying cry to the fairy tale. I think I would add, too, that, um, I mean, in terms of the brothers and the dynamic between the three, um, you know, in the Russian tale, like I said, they, they get less stage time and we don't really see them sort of enter into the inn and lose their sense of national identity there and their sense of self. Um, but we do see them become robbers and decide to murder their brother. Um, because he's got, he's fulfilled the mission and they haven't. And they want to come back with the firebird and the horse and the princess. They want those things for their own. So they succumb to a different kind of temptation. And I mean, I think, you know, agreeing with Matthew here about the darkness that fairy tales let in. I mean, I think a lot of what this is symbolically pushing is a kind of faith in, and, a, and a faith that a faith in you know beings outside of the family um, a mm. gratitude toward those beings um, and you know um, not necessarily being able to trust those who are in your family I think also an interesting thing about this tale to me is, you know, thinking about Max Luthi's book, I, I'm thinking that his first name is Max, now I'm worried that I'm getting it wrong, but his last name's Luthi. Um, thinking about um, some of what he says about the goal-oriented fairy tale and what Prop says about lack and liquidation of lack. I think a funny thing about this tale is, is the goal sort of shifts and the reason for getting the firebird um, isn't, isn't so clear, um, at least in terms of its logic. In the grim tale, the feather is presumed to be more valuable than the entire kingdom. And I'm like, whoa, um, what are they seeing in that feather? <laughs> um, other than its goldenness, um, it's a pretty valuable feather. And I, I think feathers are very valuable as I don't know, Matthew, no. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I think it becomes first the bird, then the horse, then the princess. And the question of why we're getting all these things and what they mean, um, I find to be a little obscured. 
Yeah, I think that, um, right, like, therein lies the magic. Um, and because the magic animals of this house for the last five or six minutes have been determinedly trying to tell us that our next mission is to conclude this conversation. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to turn uh, to a sort of concluding thought. I picked this story in part because I thought it was a great launching point for a bunch of discussions about fairy tales. Uh, but I thought maybe we could share some of our favorite lesser known Grimm's tales or just fairy tales in general that we love so that folks who've come to listen today uh, can go out and find some other cool stuff to enjoy. I mean, I'm, I'm going to say the juniper tree because it's so dark. I'm not even going to, I'm not even going to try and like say what it's about. It's pretty rough. You probably want to be an adult, uh, if you read it, but you know, if I had kids, I'd let them read it, I guess. Um, and also these aren't fairy tales, but I have been reading, uh, Italo Calvino's Italian folk tales and a lot of them could be, I think, construed as fairy tales because of the magical properties within them. Yeah. Um, but there are some really good ones in here. Um, there's like 200 uh, that he has uh, selected and retold. Um, and I particularly like several where the characters are either really smart or really stupid. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and, like, they're, they're one or the other. Like, there's one I just read called um, The Story of Camp Compriano, uh, where it's like a layman who tricks some rich merchants into buying worthless junk. That is amazing. Um, and then there's, there's like another one, uh, I forget what it is, where the main character is foolish and doesn't really like understand anything except that the whole premise of the story is that maybe he does understand everything and is just doing this to fuck with the people trying to make him do stupid things. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about thousand furs lately. That one haunts me a lot. Uh, I think it's a way more complicated one than it seems like. But I've also been thinking about cat and mouse just because I think it's funny. How about you, Ig? Um, so, what I really love is the six swans. I think it's really nice sometimes to go back to ones that you encountered as a child and see how they've changed for you and, you know, what you remember and what you don't. Um, my mom was a volunteer at our little library um, when I was, you know, I guess in kindergarten and first grade. And um, she used to rent videos for me. And um, I first encountered this one as a video. Um, and I remember in my little backside yard um, trying to, like, pretend that I was the protagonist of this tale and little girl um, gathering nettles to sew shirts for her brothers to save them. Um, and, you know, I, I remembered that um, all these years later, the nettles um, and sewing the shirts. Um, but I didn't remember other details of the tale. And um, it's, it's a beautiful one. The girl... Um, has to um, be silent for, I think it's six years and not laugh at all and knit these shirts to save her brothers who are turned into swans. Um, and I won't tell you what happens, but there's a moment that's typical in fairy tales, a just fairy moment, um, where, <laughs> you know, she's more or less completed the task, but there's one loose end that I think is really interesting. Um, other than that, um, I read a bunch of tales in quick succession in school and my memory is a little hazy, but I really liked some of the Chinese collections that I explored and also some of the Arabic ones for very different reasons. The Chinese ones, 
um, almost had like a Buddhist or Taoist or Taoist bent about them. And, um, the, uh, the Arabic ones, um, were very stylized and really beautiful. I found, um, in terms of their prose. Word. Well, friends, thank you for being part of my own mud blood family and for bringing a little magic into the evening. Thanks for having us, Adam. Yeah, we'll see you next time. Thank you.